So it has been a week or two for me. Uh, I don't know uh, all of what you're uh, aware of that has been going on for uh, my family in the last week and a half or so, but um, it's been quite the journey. Um, I, as you probably, hopefully you realized, I uh, wasn't here last week. Uh, he looked a little different than me. Uh, and uh, I was really just blessed that Tim was able to step in, and uh, I thought his message was great. Kiara and I watched from home last, last week, so we were watching. We were here with you in spirit, but um, we, uh, we just had to watch from the couch. So, uh, but one of the, uh, I just want to give you a, a quick overview of what uh, has gone on the last week and a half. I know a lot of you have prayed for us, but um, so in my infinite wisdom as a male, uh, I decided I was going to go kayaking by myself uh, a couple we- you know, week and a half ago. And uh, turned my kayak over in the water, lost my cell phone, uh, spent like the next six hours lost on the river trying to find where to get out, couldn't find out where to, where to get out. Jackie thought I was, you know, something terrible had happened to me, uh, so she spent the whole day with that. And I spent the whole day being angry at myself uh, for making uh, unwise decisions and uh, finally got out of the water, let Jackie know I was, yes, I was still alive um, and uh, got home, everything seemed all right. And then Friday came down with a stomach bug, pretty bad, uh, which we have since shared with a few of you. Uh, you're welcome. Uh, I think just one of you got it from us, so uh, that's why Jackie's trying to stay away from everybody this morning and make sure she doesn't give anybody anything else. Um, we don't want to share everything with you all, uh, including the stomach bug. But uh, So I was down pretty, pretty bad last week uh, and ended up having uh, asking Tim to step in and, and solve that. But in the midst of all of that... Uh, having lost my cell phone, trying to get my uh, old cell phone activated. Um, I just want to let you know, if you tried texting me or calling me anytime in the last week and a half and I haven't responded, it's because I just didn't get it. Um, normally, I would just get a different phone, activate it, and I'd get all my missed calls and my missed texts and things like that. But my cell phone carrier and their infinite wisdom decided to cancel my line at one point. Um, so all of the texts and calls, anything that was waiting died. So just so you know, I'm not ignoring any of you. So if, if any of you are waiting for like that text back or that call back, that's why you haven't gotten it um, because I lost everything uh, when they canceled my line. So um, I've been trying to recoup that. I think I'm good with the cell phone, but just you know, give me some grace if you try to text me or call me in the next week and I'm still trying to work all the bugs out with what they did to my line. So um, just wanted to make you aware of that. Thank you all for praying for me and my family and all of us. Uh, so far, the kids have not gotten the, the bug or anything like that. So um, that's been a blessing. Um, but you can keep praying for Jackie. I know she's still not feeling great. Um, she's still recouping. I think, I think it's mostly allergies at this point she's dealing with. But uh, we can continue to use your prayers as we walk through that. But yeah, it has been, uh, I think the word that I, I, I've pulled from this last week and a half was humbling been a very humbling week. Um, A lot of things that were out of my control, uh, realizing that my decisions uh, weren't the wisest and having to admit some of the things that I did that were uh, were not wise or good uh, has been tough, but um, it's been good. been a good week and a half. Um, We went, like I said, we went whitewater rafting. All seven of the people that we went with, we came back with, so... um, that's a positive, uh, and they're all here this morning, so they're obviously that they're that they're in good enough shape to even make it to church. So uh, uh, we had a we had a good time on the river, and thankfully for the first time in the last week and a half, I was the only one that one of the only ones that didn't fall in the water. So uh, that was a nice change of pace for us. So, uh, but I want to 
continue our series, uh, our New Life series, uh, as, as we've been going through the book of Colossians. Hopefully you've been reading chapter 2. You had an extra week to read chapter 2 a couple times uh, and to kind of give yourself some time to digest chapter 2. Uh, and I think there's a lot in here. I think, obviously, um, all of Scripture has so much for us. And uh, I just want to encourage you, as we continue to do, anytime we're doing an expository series, which means we're going verse by verse through a, uh, a, a portion of Scripture, I encourage you to read that portion of Scripture as much as you can the week before. Um, so that when we get together on Sundays and we're talking about it, man, the Holy Spirit has had time to really speak to you in, in regards to that Scripture. And I promise you, He's way better at it than me. Uh, I'm going to try to pull some truths out of here, and we're going to talk about it this morning, but um, God is way better at illuminating things than I am. So give Him the space and the time to do that. Um, but I want to jump in um, to Colossians chapter 2 uh, and verse 1. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation, so if you want to follow along on your own version of God's Word. Uh, if you can pull up the New Living, I encourage you to do that. Um, or if not, then just know uh, your translation might be different. Colossians 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 1 says, I want you to know how much I have agonized for you and for the church at Laodicea and for many other believers who have never met me personally. Again, just rehashing some of the facts we know about Colossians. It's written by Paul. Uh, it's written to a very uh, young church, many of whom Paul hasn't uh, met before. He never, he's never met the church since it was um, established. He's met, some of, he's met a few of the individuals. We get the picture that he's met a few of them um, individually, but not since there has actually been a church there in Colossae. So uh, Paul is writing this letter to them, uh, having never met them, but to encourage their faith. He's gotten great reports about their faith and their, uh, how much they love Jesus, but also he's getting reports of what is really commonplace uh, during this time period. Uh, a lot of uh, false religions trying to infiltrate the church, and especially um, Jewish people uh, trying to convince the Christians, these new believers, that, well, you can believe in Jesus, you just have to follow all these other steps if you want to actually be chosen by God. If you want to go to heaven or, or be God's chosen people, then you've got to follow all of our laws and all these steps, and Paul is writing uh, to refute that. But one of the things I thought was interesting here in verse 1 is Paul's never met this group of people. He has no actual personal connection to this church. He didn't start, this isn't one of the churches that Paul started. Uh, and yet, he says he agonizes for this church. I don't know about you, I don't know which of your prayers you would say, you know, if you had to categorize your prayers to like, oh, these people I pray fervently for, these people I pray periodically for, and, and these prayer requests I agonize over. Like, these are the ones that I agonize over. And I just think it's fascinating that Paul, uh, he, gets, he gets a bad rap, in my opinion, in a lot of ways. Like, he's very rash, and he's, he's very passionate, and he's, he speaks before he thinks sometimes. And, you know, he, he, can, he can be very aggressive. You know, some of the churches, they talk about that, um, you know, how, how aggressive Paul can be in his letters. Um, but he's also got a huge heart for the church, a huge heart uh, for every expression of the church, even ones he's not personally connected to, even, even ones he didn't start. It's not about, you know, Paul just wants the churches he started to succeed, but he really has a passion, a burning passion that the Word of God and the communities of God would, would succeed. And I just wonder how many of us agonize even for our own body of believers, even for our church family, 
Do we agonize and pray that God would show up, that God would bring unity, that God would break down the strongholds of, uh, that exist, that get in the way? Because that's the, the honest truth is in every church, there are going to be strongholds. There are going to be things that the enemy has spent decades creating. In our church, uh, how many of you know when we'll celebrate our 100 year? Nobody. Well, we better start getting on the ball then. We have two years to plan our 100-year celebration. Um, I think, I have to look at the paper, but the, the date is something, August something of 2024. will be 100 years our church has been in existence. That's 98 years of baggage and things the enemy has been working against. From the moment of this church's conception, the enemy has been against it. Um, because he's completely opposed to the church of God. Because he knows the power that a church can have. And so with all of the rich, amazing history, all the uh, awesome things, and I encourage you to learn more about, God has done some really cool things in this church's history. With all of that comes the work of the enemy as well. And so there are things that exist here, and, and they, they can only be kicked out by prayer. It doesn't matter how many great programs we have. It doesn't matter uh, who our elders are or our deaconesses are. It doesn't matter uh, you know, the color of our signs or you know, the, the, how many projects we do inside the church to make the church look nicer. Uh, it's not going to fix that stuff. There are certain things that can only happen through the Word of God, through prayer, and asking God, and for, for the majority of the family to be against them and to agree spiritually that these things need to go. And so um, I would encourage you, agonize over our church family. Allow yourself to be truly burdened for the things of this church family. And I promise you, the more you do that, the more knit your heart will be to others in this room and those who call this place home. As you begin to truly invest and, and to put on uh, the, the burden of this church's health onto your, your prayer life, watch how you begin to love even more deeply the people around you and the church. And I believe that's why Paul loves the church so much is because he agonizes over it. Because it's such, it takes such a uh, primary place in his prayer life that he desperately begs the Father to create health and to protect these churches from false teachings. And nothing, not much has changed since this, this, the writing of this letter. The church is always beset by false teachings and people trying to add things to the gospel, people trying to take away things from the gospel, people trying to say, Jesus and this. It's never ceased. The things that has wavered from time to time is our commitment to fight against them. And so let us, as a church, come together and pray against these things and, and ask God to, to break the chains that exist, that we would be as healthy a church as, we, uh, as God wants us to be, that we would have the unity that He wants us to have, that the, the uh, acts of the enemy would be cast from this place, and this would be uh, a family who is just knit together in a special way. Moving on to verse 2, Colossians 2.2. 2. I want them to be encouraged and knit together by strong ties of love. I want them to have complete confidence that they understand God's mysterious plan, which is Christ himself. So if you wonder, what does it mean that Paul agonized over the church? What are the things that he desperately begged the Father for the church? Right here. That they'd be encouraged, that they'd be knit together by strong ties of love. And 
some of you know, I didn't grow up in the church. So some of the weird things about the church and like the dysfunction of the church came as like a shock to me because I didn't grow up with it. It wasn't a norm for me. And so I, I step into the church and I'm like, man, what seems to bind a lot of these churches together is the bitterness and the feuds and everybody's angry about everybody. And, and so, you know, people just have these chips on their shoulder about other people in the church. And, um, and then small churches like ours, you know, it has, tends to be like the clans. You got the, this clan and that clan and that family. And well, that family's still mad at that family because of something they did to that family. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa what? We're the church. That comes first. Our allegiance to Jesus comes before our allegiance to anybody else. Or else, don't call yourself a Christian. If we're going to say, no, my family comes first before Jesus, then that's not a Christian. That's a churchgoer. And that's fine. You can identify as a churchgoer. But somebody who says a Christian means, that means a little Christ. That means our entire goal is to be more like Jesus every day. And so that means, yeah, you know what? That person from the other family might have wronged you in the worst possible way. Guess what Jesus does? He forgives. He forgave our sin, which was piled up higher than anybody could ever pile a sin against you. You have sinned against Jesus worse than anybody could ever sin against you. Who are we to hold on to that? And to say, well, you just don't understand. I don't need to. It doesn't matter what they did. We are to forgive. We are to be unified in that um, that is what Paul agonized for the church over because he knew he knew that it wouldn't take long before so-and-so said something to so-and-so. Uh, it wouldn't be long before that person didn't say hi to the other person in the foyer or um, you know, that, that person's relationship broke up and now that other family's offended and all these things begin to happen in the church. And Paul, what he agonizes over is they would be knit together by strong ties of love and that they have a complete confidence in their understanding of Jesus. So that leads me to one of my first questions this morning. How confident are you that you understand God's mysterious plan? If I were to put out a test this week, a little pop quiz, I know we all love those in school. That was always a fun time. You walk in and the teacher says, pop quiz, which was fine for me because I treated them the same as I did a test. Um, I studied just as much, but... Uh, how confident are you that you understand God's mysterious plan? Because again, this is one of the things that Paul agonizes over the church, that they would understand, that they would have confidence that they understand this. And my argument, well, my guess would be, if I put that out there, it'd be a pretty low percentage of people that would say, I am confident that I understand God's mysterious plan. Now, you probably actually do understand it, at least to a degree, but we don't have that confidence of knowing. I know exactly what God's plan for this world and for myself is. It's actually it's a large part of what we're talking about in our Sunday school class is what is God's plan for our life? What is his calling on our life and figuring that out? But why is it important that we would have confidence that we understand the mystery of Christ? Well, let's look at verse 3. In him lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and and knowledge. Is it to Christ that we go for knowledge and wisdom? When we are, are stuck in a position where it's like, man, we got to make a decision, or we have something going on in our life, and we just, we need advice. Do we go to the Lord first? Or do we go to that friend, that family member, that confidant, that person that is, is, your, is your rock, is your go-to person that you process with? 
Uh, by no means do I want to tell us that processing with people is wrong. I, I'm a verbal processor. I like to process with people. But when I'm looking for knowledge and wisdom, do I go to God? Do I go to Him first to ask Him for the wisdom and the knowledge that we need? Because like this verse says, in Him lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And if you, my, the old adage, I, I love it, uh, as far as the difference between wisdom and knowledge, is knowledge is knowing a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting it in a fruit salad. Uh, wisdom is knowledge applied. Uh, that's what wisdom is. And so uh, when we, uh, it's one thing to know things. It's another to know how to apply them in a particular situation. We were just talking about this in our Sunday school class this morning, how important it is. Um, when you come out of school, I know I came out of school, uh, and I know many other people come out of school with this thought like, okay, I know everything. And then you immediately begin to engage in the field that you have spent years studying in, and the first thing you realize is, I know nothing. I don't know how to apply all this knowledge. And so it's to God we should go to apply the knowledge of Scripture. And I hope you've had those moments where you read a Scripture and the Holy Spirit illuminates it to you and it goes from knowledge to wisdom because you figure out how it applies to your life. I mean, that's, that's my goal every Sunday morning is to open up the Word of God to take what you already know, because uh, many of you have already read through the Bible, and to transfer that to wisdom, to how it applies to your life situations. Uh, that's when it becomes wisdom. I encourage you to run to Christ. That's why it's so important that we understand the mystery of Christ, because it's in Him that lies all the wisdom and knowledge that we need for life. Too often we run to books and we run to podcasts and we run to friends and we run to family and we ask them the questions and we wrestle over things with them and here's God saying, man, I've got all the answers right here. I, I've talked to many people who say like, oh, I, I need someone to explain the Bible to me because I just don't get it. I, I can sit with you and help. Like I can chat about the Bible with you. But man, until you learn the habit of reading the Scripture and meditating on it with the Holy Spirit and asking God to do that work, man, it's never going to work because uh, my knowledge is very limited, especially in comparison to God and what he can do with that. Many of you will, uh, if you ask somebody who's walked with Jesus long enough, they can tell you the moments that they've had between just them, Jesus, and the Word of God transcend anything any sermon has ever done for them. <laughs> because it's in those moments where we meet with God and his Word becomes alive to us that this, this, the power really comes out of that. Verse 4, I am telling you this, so no one will deceive you with well-crafted arguments. Here's one of the main reasons. We talked about the purpose. Why did Paul write this book? Well, this is one of the purposes, because there were really well-crafted arguments that people had to incorporate these pagan religions and really good understanding of why you needed to, as a Christian, you needed to follow all the Jewish laws. And they had really good sense, like, well, uh, you know, it's not going to hurt, you know, to, to obey all these laws. They, they helped the Israelites for thousands of years. They're obviously still good laws, so you should just obey them. And, and so who knows what all the, the well-crafted arguments were but it doesn't seem like they were ridiculous, off the wall. I mean, sure, there were some of those, but then there were also really, really good-sounding arguments that people had in order to dilute the gospel and in order to pull people away from the true gospel. Paul explains um, that's 
one of his main reasons for writing this letter. It's to encourage the church, but also to refute these false teaching. Um, and, and they were using very sound wisdom and, and very sound knowledge. And that, uh, I think sometimes we think uh, that the enemy of our souls, like he's going to come with these like ridiculous off-the-wall theories. And very often, the, the craftiest and the most dangerous arguments are the ones that, that smell of Scripture and can even use a bit of Scripture, but are completely off, off of the Bible. It's, it's, um, some of you know I grew up as a Jehovah Witness, and uh, one of the reasons I consider that to be one of the more dangerous false religions is because it makes sense of so many things that don't make sense. They're well-crafted arguments. It brings things that are beyond our understanding into a a place where, oh yeah, I guess I can understand that. I guess I can grasp that. And to me, that's very dangerous because that's sometimes what we want. We want to be able to control it by by fully understanding something. And we have to admit sometimes that I just don't understand God. And in a particular situation or just in general, sometimes it's just admitting and his ways are beyond mine. His perspective is beyond mine, and so I just have to sit here in faith, just trusting that he knows better, that he knows what he's doing. Verse 5. For though I am far away from you, my heart is with you, and I rejoice that you are living as you should and that your faith in Christ is strong. Paul goes to great lengths to ensure the Colossian church just knows just how much he cares for them. It, it, to me, it's, it's a shocking thing because Paul's an intellectual. He's a scholar. He's, uh, a ve- he was a very powerful Pharisee. He was on the road to be a big somebody. And yet he often is reminding these churches just how much he cares for them, how much he loves them, how much his heart breaks for them. And I think that's, a, again, another thing that we could learn from Paul and utilize in the church more is to let other people around us know just how much we care for them, how much our heart breaks for them, that we're thinking about them, asking about you know, things in their life and, and not making you know, the, the time before service. I hope you show up early. I hope you like the fellowship with people and hang out a little bit. Um, but my hope is that it wouldn't always be surfacey, like, oh, how was your week? Oh, good. How was yours? But that we'd really get into stuff with each other and talk about things and be transparent with things. And uh, it's one of the reasons I wanted to share my journey over the last week and a half, because I want transparency for us. I want you to know, like, man, my last, my last week and a half stunk. I was really mad at times, and I was really upset, and I was really struggling there uh, a few moments uh, through, through that journey. And it's okay to be that way. You've heard me say it many times. It's okay not to be okay. I had to be okay not being okay. Uh, with it and being angry um, that things were happening and that, you know, um, things were out of my control and just accepting that. Again, notice that Paul doesn't encourage their great programs, their great music, their great preaching, all of the things that we tend to think about like, oh, I love my church because I love the music. I love my church because I love uh, whatever it is. And notice what Paul does encourage. He rejoices that they are living as they should, and that their faith in Christ is strong. And my, my hope would be that would be true of us, that each of us would be living as we should, that when we walk in on a Sunday morning, we don't walk in with that, that background voice of the enemy saying, oh, if they only knew what your week was like, oh, if they only knew what you got into this week, oh, if they only knew that conversation you had with your coworker this week and the way that you talked and the way that you acted and the thoughts of your mind. And what if we walked in fully aware that, man, I'm living as I should. 
yeah, I, you know, obviously we're going to sin and we're going to mess up here and there, but man, that we're walking with the Lord and we're going after Him with all that we have. The confidence that that would bring and the joy that that would bring to us if we knew that's how we're living. So can those close to you, those who love you, those who walk with the Lord as well, do they get to rejoice that you are living as you should and that your faith in Christ is strong? Do you bring that joy to those around you? They say, man, I, I love whatever your name is. I just love how they just, they're just walking with God. And their faith is like incredible. And I'm just always in awe of their faith in God. What a great testimony that is. Uh, sometimes I, I think about, you know, one day, hopefully very, very distant in the future, when people are standing around at my funeral talking about me and just wondering, like, what will they say? Will they talk about, you know, how much I love to go to the Texas Roadhouse, which I do, how much I love meat or coffee? Or my hope would be that they would talk about my faith in God and how I walked with the Lord and how I walked right with the Lord. Now I honored him with my life. Those are the things that I, I really hope are part of my legacy. And I hope that that's a priority to you as well. Not just that you know that you are, but that others see it around you as well. Because that's important. That others, that we would be a witness for others. That they would see us walking that way. And that's a Paul's prayer over the church. Verse 6. And now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Christianity is not a one-time transaction. It's one of the things that, that bother me since I came to know Christ uh, and I found out later um, that there's supposed to be this whole prayer thing that you do. Like, oh, you've got to pray the prayer. You never prayed the prayer? Then you must not be saved. What? Says who? And then I found out, like, that whole thing started, like, in the early 1900s with a certain guy. He came up with this concept of, like, oh, praying the prayer. Like, this, you know, helps to expedite things, and I don't know, maybe he was like a salesman at heart or something, and he, he, like, he knows how to close the deal, uh, but that was never a thing. There was no prayer prayer before 1900s. It was just you, you started believing in Jesus, and you walked the walk, and you were discipled by somebody, and you began to live that life. There was no moment where you, you know, prayed this thing that all of a sudden made this transaction happen. Sure, there was a moment where you gave your life over to God and, and where you began to walk with Him, but we didn't publicize that. We didn't make that the goal until like the early 1900s. And I, I think whoever that was, I, I think it was well-intentioned, and I think some very good things have come from that. But one of the negative sides to that is I think that we, we make it the goal, that like the goal is to pray that prayer. And then once we've gotten that, we're good. Both the person who was encouraging you to pray the prayer and the person that prayed the prayer both feel like, oh, done. That's done. I can move on now. And that's, the, that's a problem to me because that isn't the goal. That isn't the destination. That's the beginning of a journey. To me, it's the similar problem that people have with marriage is they view marriage as the goal. Oh, finally got him to say I do, now I can kick back and I can stop pursuing my spouse, I can stop loving them, I can stop sacrificing for them, I can stop, you know, all the, no, that's the beginning. It's the beginning of your life together. And when, when we prayed that prayer or when we came to know Christ, that was the beginning of our life with Him. 
We were born again. We were now infants in Christ, and we have to grow. And that's what Paul's encouraging them to, that you must continue to follow him. There must be a continuation of that following for the rest of our lives. We'll never outgrow Jesus. We'll never learn too much. We'll never know enough. We'll never be righteous enough. We'll never have our life together enough that we don't need him anymore. We'll just continue to fall more desperately in love with them. And, and those of you that have been married for a long time and uh, you know, still in love with your spouse, you've, you acknowledge that you want them around even more than you did when you first got married. It just gets better the more that you pursue one another and the more you walk in that. That's the same with Jesus. We're not going to get to a point where it's like, Whew, okay, I don't have to invest any more time with you. If that's your marriage, let's talk. But that should, certainly shouldn't be the way we view Jesus and our relationship with Him. It's every day, every year, we should want to be with Him more, and we should want to spend more time with Him. Because praying that prayer was just the first step in this beautiful, lifelong journey of pursuit. And so, if you are that person, I'm not telling you not to have people pray the prayer, but what I am telling you is to help them understand. I think we do a disservice to people when we treat it like it's the goal. Like, oh man, all I gotta do is pray the prayer and you're good. All I gotta do is pray that prayer, pray the prayer. Okay, you prayed the prayer, awesome. Praise the Lord and we walk away. If you get somebody to pray the prayer with you, I just wanna make it clear, that's your disciple now. I, I, I'm not saying that's 100% true, but for the most part, if you're, praying the, if you're getting someone to pray the prayer, that's now your disciple. It's your responsibility then to walk with them for that season or find somebody who can walk with them. That's your responsibility then. But by nowhere in the Scripture are you going to find somewhere where it says, go out and make converts. Go out and get people to pray a prayer and then leave them, to their, you know, leave them on their own. And there's so many people who genuinely believed in Jesus. Maybe they, they prayed that prayer and they really meant it. And we did them a disservice by not following up, not continuing to disciple them in their walk. I don't, I don't think any of us would think it would be okay if someone just took an infant, sat it on a curb, and walked away. Why? It's a baby. They don't know what to do. They don't know how to take care of themselves. And spiritually speaking, when someone comes to know Christ, that's where they're at. We need to walk with them and help them to get to the place where they know how to read the Word of God daily. How they know how to worship the Lord, how to spend time with Him, how to pray with Him. All these things that are important for our walk with Jesus, that's our responsibility to ensure that they learn those. Not to ensure that the, what they stay away from, and often that becomes our goal. Okay, now that you're a Christian, stop smoking, stop drinking, don't go here, don't go there, don't do that. That's not our job. That's the Holy Spirit's job. It's our job to love them and walk with them and help them to grow. Verse 7. Let your roots grow down into him and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught and you will overflow with thankfulness. The roots are not only where the tree draws life from the ground. If you know a tree, the roots go down and part of the purpose of that is that it's going to pull water in and pull nutrients in from the soil and that, uh, that's a big part of it. But it's also where it finds support for when the storms come. And if the root structure's not great, then you get to see, you know, when the big winds come, you see this tree's overturned and, and uh, downed on people's houses and causing all this damage. It's because the root structure wasn't strong. The Bible also talks uh, about the danger of building uh, our house on shifting sand. We're told that's 
never a good idea. Um, I don't think uh, anybody thinks that's a good idea. We can all acknowledge that's probably a pretty bad idea. Uh, because why? There needs to be that foundation. Same as a tree, why the roots need to be strong. Why we don't you know, chop all the roots off of a tree just because they're getting in our way. Why? Because, yeah, you might be able to get the roots out of your way, but then that tree's going to die and fall down and cause even more damage. So Paul's praying, let the roots grow down into him that their roots would, would be deeply embedded into who Jesus is and that our lives would be built on him, that we would be built on the rock, that our foundation, uh, and again, part of what we were talking about in our Sunday school class this morning, that the, the importance of understanding your identity in Christ, that your foundation for your being, for everything that you do should be built on a foundation of who you are in Christ. And we skip over that so often in the church. We're so focused on what should I do? What can I do? What should I do? What do I have to do? We fail to stop and, and, and focus on our identity, on who we are in Christ. If we truly understood that we are loved children of God, that we are co-heirs with Christ, man, you would live your life differently. You would walk a different way. And just like we talked about this morning, if, if you found out you were the heir of uh, England or whatever, and somehow, some way that you found out you were, you were the next descendant after the queen, you'd walk a little differently out of this church <laughs> if you got that news. You'd walk a little differently in England if you ever went over there. Why? Because you're royalty, man. They have to respect you. You have authority. You have standing. You matter. Man, it's so much more true with Jesus. You're a co-heir to the kingdom of God. There is no higher standing that we could ever hope for. And we didn't deserve it. It has nothing to do with us. Just like if you found out you were the heir of England or whatever, it wouldn't be because you did something great. It'd be because you were born into it. It was a birthright of yours. And we call it being born again as believers because we're born again into the Spirit and we have certain birthrights now. Because he's adopted us and he's brought us in as sons and daughters of the king. And we have this tremendous authority now. And we have this amazing standing as children of God. And that matters. That should change the way you live. We should build our lives on Jesus who never changes. And if we do this, our faith will grow strong and it will overflow with thankfulness. And I have, to this date, I have never met a Christian who has an amazing relationship with Jesus and is a complainer. It just doesn't work that way. When we have that deep relationship with Jesus, Paul's pretty clear, you're going to overflow with thankfulness. You know somebody who, who just embodies lo the love of Jesus, I can guarantee you that person's a thankful person. They're a grateful individual because that's just how it works with him. When we truly understand him, when, when we spend time with him, when we really grasp just all that he has done for us, we can do nothing other than be grateful and be thankful because he has done so much. So I think that's a, another question I want us to wrestle with as we process the chapter two is, do we overflow with thankfulness? Are, we live in a culture of complaining of negative reviews, and anybody can complain. If you have not learned this yet in your life, it's really easy to complain. 
Anybody can find fault with something. To me, it, it takes intention at times to find the good in something. Uh, my wife is really good at that. She's like the silver lining person. She finds like the positive things, and I tend to be very critical. Uh, and she'll like say the one positive thing, and I'm like, man, she always does that. Like she always finds that one good thing in something. And uh, we should be like that as believers. That's who we should be, are the, those who are thankful, even in a bad situation, um, to be thankful, to say, thank you, Lord, for this, this aspect of this. That's what I'm grateful for. Verse 8 says, Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. And Paul knows how to not hold back. He just calls it like it is. This is high-sounding nonsense, he says. He's very clear that these false teachings are not of God. It's not that like, oh, well, you know, they make a few good points. He's like, no, this is, don't let them capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense. Uh, all they have are these empty philosophies. I don't, I don't know if you've ever engaged some people, uh, not, un, non-Christians who have these like wild beliefs. I know I have. I have had talk with these people and it's like, what? Like, where did you get this? I don't know, man. It's just like, it's how I feel. You need to go to the doctor and get that feeling checked out because I don't know where that came from. You know, people get into some weird stuff and it's like, why would you, you would want to believe that rather than the Bible? That has been proven time and time and time and time again to be the authentic word of God that has existed through the powers of this world trying to destroy it for centuries. You'd rather believe that that crystal is going to bring you to heaven. Oh, okay. I mean, that's high-sounding nonsense right there. That's an empty philosophy based on nothing. And so often we base these beliefs on absolutely nothing. And it's not just people outside of Christianity. We do the same thing inside the church. We build these ideas of who God is on feelings, on what we want, on our desires, instead of based on the Word of God. Paul's clear where all of this comes from. Human thinking and the spiritual power of this world. That's where they come from, not from Christ. I can't tell you how many times I've heard good Christians tell me about their ideas of God, but they, lo- they know little to nothing about the Bible. They love Jesus, they profess to be a believer, but they have these crazy beliefs about God. And it's like, well, where is it? where'd you get that from Scripture? Oh, no, I didn't get that from Scripture. I got that from this other book or this other thing or this other uh, philosopher. Oh, okay, well, that's high-sounding nonsense. That's human thinking and the powers of this world. We must be careful, just like this church, uh, the uh, church in Colossae, to be very careful when we're interacting with information or philosophies or ideas because there's, there's some intriguing ideas out there but that's all they are is high sounding nonsense and empty philosophies based on human thinking and the spiritual powers of this world and we have to be careful when we come up with them that everything we have has a foundation in christ every understanding i I, when i was in college i went to a bible college i got saved uh, you know I, i came to know christ when i was somewhere around 14 and didn't really grow much in my faith. Went to college, and uh, as I'm sitting in college, I, I begin to, it becomes very clear to me. I have no idea why I believe what I believe. I couldn't tell you why. Do I believe that Jesus is God? Yeah. Why? I don't know. 
Because the pastor said so. Do I believe that you know, the Holy Spirit empowers us and speaks to us and moves through us? Yeah. Why? I don't know. And honestly, if I sat down with each of you, how many of you would know why? You believe each of these things. Now, I'm not saying you have to know like the verse and, 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 and uh, the address of every scripture, but you should know the scriptures to why you believe what you believe. If you don't, there's a good chance that at least part of your theology comes from human thinking and the powers of this world. If it's not based in scripture, everything should have that foundation. Every bit of your beliefs should have their foundation in scripture. In my opinion, it's, it's why the church struggled so much in the last few decades is we had so much built up on human thinking and the powers of this world. So many rules and regulations, you know, you know all the things that we weren't supposed to do and all the things we we're supposed to stay away from and, and all the judgments we had on each other. They weren't from God. They were from our own thinking, our own understanding, and the spiritual powers of this world. And we drove so many people out of the church because we professed them to be Christian beliefs. But that's all they were based on is human thinking. And if we, and if we were to say, you know what? For me to profess this as something I believe, it must be found in Scripture. I will ensure that all of my beliefs are rooted in Scripture and the foundation is Jesus. Man, that changes everything. Now, we might have personal convictions about something, but we're not going to push that on other people and, and look down on them and judge them because we acknowledge that's not, a, belief, that's not a, a, a Christian belief I have. That's a personal thing for me. So we need to be careful that we don't follow down our own lines of understanding that are outside of Scripture. Verse 9. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. We touched on this two weeks ago uh, a good bit, the, the later half of chapter 1. It really gets into this idea that uh, Jesus was both fully man and fully God, that all the fullness of God dwelt in Jesus' human body. And there are so many, I mean, I could do a whole series on the implications of, of what this means, that Jesus embodied all the fullness of God and, and all that that means for them. But uh, this is Paul again reiterating a fact that was so important to, to refute the false teachings, is that Jesus wasn't just a good teacher. He wasn't just a good philosopher. He wasn't just a powerful prophet. He was God. And that, and that Colossian church needed to understand that because of the implications it has for their faith. And notice that he also states this in the present, not the past. Jesus currently, in Christ, currently lives all the fullness of God. And I think this is very purposeful in the language of Paul that he doesn't use a past tense, that, oh, the, uh, Jesus who was alive when he was alive he had all the fullness of God. But Paul's making it clear Jesus is still alive and he's still in him dwells all the fullness of God. How can a human body contain all the fullness of God? It can't. Yet Christ does it. I don't understand it, but I accept it. And those are some of the things that we need to, to get a hold of. I believe this because the Word of God says this. I really can't wrap my mind around it but I believe it because Jesus says it so. Verse 10. So you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. Complete, Paul says, lacking in nothing. You also are complete through your union with Christ. 
Um, remember a couple of weeks ago I gave you that homework. Look yourself in the mirror. Tell yourself that you're a beautiful masterpiece of, of God. Why? Because you're complete. Your union with Christ, your identity in Him has brought certain truths about who you are. And the enemy has assaulted that since the moment you came to know Christ. He has fought against that and tried to convince you how messed up, how broken, how useless you are for God. Because he knows if you just got a hold of that identity, if you truly understood how complete you are, he would have nothing left to do because you would operate from that place of completeness and fullness in God. Again, whatever these false teachers tried to claim was of equal or greater importance than Jesus, Paul makes it clear that Jesus is the head of all of it. And I know sometimes we can get really like caught up in the things of this world, like, oh, um, all of the, whether it's the president of our country or the things that are going on across the world, to just sit back and rest. And, and we can pray for all of that, and we should, but also to acknowledge at the same time he's head of it all. He's head over every ruler and every authority. He is in control. We're not. I don't have a whole lot of control with what's going on in the country right now. If I did, gas prices wouldn't be like they are. But God's in control. He's got it. We don't need to try to control it for Him. He's got it under control. Verse 11. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. Now, this is another big, important verse for them. This is Paul really just plainly speaking against the false teaching because one of the biggest issues in this early church time was the, the Judaism people, uh, the true Jews coming into these churches and saying, okay, now that you guys are saved, you all need to follow all of the customs. And the, you know, the biggest one for them was being circumcised. You have to come in and you have to complete that. All the males here, they have to follow that, that law because it was such a big deal for them. And it became this huge obstacle for the early church. And Paul just very clearly not only discounts the physical circumcision, but he talks about one that is even more important, that there's a spiritual cutting away that has happened for them. For those who uh, believe in Jesus, Paul reassures them that uh, by being a believer, by having the spiritual act, that it far, far surpasses that they have been circumcised, just like these Jewish people are trying to tell them to do. He's telling them, yeah, you've done that, but you've done an even more important work of that. And so, uh, again, Paul just coming right after that. Because... Uh, Paul says here, there's been a spiritual circumcision, which is the cutting away of our sinful nature. How often, though, do we add rules? When we talk about the, the early church and the Jewish uh, people coming in and adding rules to the, to the early church people, and we talk about the pagan people coming in and they're adding rules and they're adding things to the Scriptures, I believe it's just as wrong when we add things to the Scriptures, when we add our own rules and regulations of what people should do and what they shouldn't do and what they have to do in order to be a believer or to go to church or to be a part of the, the family of God. It's just as wrong. Verse 12, For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, 
And with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. One of the great symbolisms of baptism we talked about at at our last baptism is how we were buried and we rise again just as Christ did. That's one of the symbolisms of it. As we go under the water, we were buried with Christ and we rise again with him. Uh, It's because of Christ that we can be raised to new life. It's because of him that we can die to ourself and die to our sinful nature, as Paul just talked about, and we can be raised to this new life. He's also solidifying that it's through faith that we are saved, not because of our works, not because of something we did, not because of how great we were, or because God thought, man, if I could just save that person, man, what a, what a benefit to my kingdom they would be. Uh, that wasn't true for anybody ever. God saved us not because of who we were, because of what we brought to the table, but simply because of who he is. It sounds a lot like, um, if you remember from the beginning of of our uh, series in Colossians, we talked about how Paul wrote uh, possibly three letters from the same prison cell that he's in now, one of those letters being Ephesians. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 9, Paul writes, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. He really doesn't leave it up to question. Salvation is because He is good, and we are not. That's what it's about. We didn't earn it, and some of us need to hear this. Stop living like you can earn it. Stop living out of this place of obligation to God, as if you're obligated to do things for him as if someday uh, if you work hard enough you'll have proven that you were you were worthy of being a christian we don't live out of obligation we live out of gratefulness out of appreciation that's how our we should be motivated not because we have to because that's not love i don't feel like i have to do things for my wife i do them because i want to i because I, I, I want to bless her 